I want to start by asking you a question. Have you ever tried selling something online and instantly regretted it because of the shady characters that showed up? Ever happened to you? Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, uh, eBay, something like that. Um, recently, we tried selling some furniture on Facebook Marketplace and got a promising offer right away. We were really nervous about the price. We we're like, I don't know if we should put it out there at this price. Maybe, I mean, it's less than what we paid for, but maybe we could get some value out of it. And we put it out there, and instantly someone put an offer on it. We were like, yes, we were excited until the negotiations started. And then we started feeling a little bit uneasy um, about the person who was supposedly interested. We we're like, ah, wait a second. Are they for real? Do they live, re li um, really live in, uh, it was a different country? Um, who's this brother of hers that's planning to come pick up the item? Why did we give them our street address? Oh, no. <laughs> and then we got an email from PayPal and then another email from Facebook saying there was suspicious activity on our account. And we're like, oh, no, we got to shut this transaction down. ASAP. We got to get this done right away. And then obviously for another measure of secure security, we changed all of our passwords um, on Facebook and PayPal and, you know, our emails and everything like that. You know, just another day in 2022. <laughs> By the way, if you haven't changed your password in a while, one, two, three, and your name is not a good password. <laughs> PSA. Here's the point. We often try to spend a lot of our time in our lives figuring out who is telling us the truth. Whether it's scam profiles online or a media source or some large-scale politician or many even of our personal relationships. And I don't want to put a percentage on it, but it sure seems like the majority of our life, when it comes to how we relate to people, one of the questions we're asking is, hold on, wait. Are you for real? Is, is that legit? Are you telling the truth? Can I take you at your word or is that not real? Is that not true? The natural result is that in this constant wrestling, this constant struggling, questioning, the very natural question arises in our relationship with the Lord. Is God a liar? Now, I think it's a question that we're all working through, we're all dealing with at some level. Our culture's voice, obviously, is very loud on this issue. Our culture will say, God is a liar. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Our, our culture will say, God is a liar. They're very quick to call God a liar, to say that the premise of God throughout the Bible is very irrelevant, because there's no way that this person could possibly be real. But this morning, I'm not actually interested in what culture says. I'm not interested with the masses or with the mob is generally thinking, I'm asking you, is, is God a liar? Because I think we're tempted to view God with a sense of um, hesitation or distrust, kind of like that Facebook marketplace transaction. We, we view God sometimes like this fake profile pretending to be this trustworthy individual who wants to meet us right where we're at. But when we Peel back the biblical profile to see what's underneath, to see how God really interacts with us. I think we're tempted to view him as this divine distortion about to disappoint us. Is God a liar? So we pull ourselves out of the relationship the minute trust is required, the minute he has a chance to prove himself. And we judge him based on our own limited 
grading scale and finite timeline. We put promises in God's mouth that we made out in our own image and we judge him according to that. I might say, oh, God didn't answer my prayer for whatever it was that I prayed last month, so I'm done. I can't trust him. Unless God gets me out of this painful situation, he must be a mean God who is unsafe and untrustworthy. God sure must want to change this struggle around for me. It's difficult. It's scary. It's pulling me in different directions. Surely God can't want this for me. Now, what I heard from God in one season seems really silent in this season, so I don't know if I can rely on God anymore. I'm just going to take things into my own hands. Thanks for nothing, God. You led me on for a while, then you just left. You abandoned me. You said one thing, and you didn't follow through. And so we wrestle with this question, is God a liar? And I think this morning, we have a beautiful opportunity not just to work through this tension, but to deal with it straight from God's Word. So... If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to actually start in verse 15, but as you're turning there, if you remember last week, Pastor Jason talked about um, what is doctrinally called the substitutionary atonement, which in layman's terms just means that Jesus put himself in our place. He took our sin penalty on himself. So if you remember verse 13, uh, it says, Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it's written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who hung on the tree. In other words, Jesus received all of the consequences that your sin incurred, that you should have paid for, that I should have paid for. Jesus took that on himself. Verse 14, through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing as he promised to Abraham, so that we who are believers might re receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. And so Paul is consistently, and certainly this morning, write, writing about the promises of God. But with a culture that is so loud about God being a liar, what we often do is... We, we don't necessarily agree with that. We don't put an exclamation point on that. We say, oh yeah, I agree with you, culture. We often convince ourselves of a different version of God by putting words in his mouth. And so we, we wouldn't want to necessarily um, say God is straight up deceptive. God is disappointing. We would never say that. But I think we're tempted to, I think in the body of Christ, in the church, we're tempted to make up our own version of God, one that's reliable on a, um, on, a, on, a, on a personal level because we've made him in our own image. We wouldn't say God's a liar, but we act like he is. You know, so we put these promises in, our mouth, in God's mouth, and then we are disappointed when he doesn't live up to that. Promises such as, I will give Brent Cole whatever he wants when he asks for it, I am his servant. I'll, I never want you to be unsafe, under pressure, unsure, underfed. I want to make sure you're always comfortable and secure. Well, we relate to God as if that's his expectation for our lives. Um, I never want you to struggle with anything, but instead I'm going to prevent all the troubles in your life, provided you have enough faith. And if you don't, it's because you don't have enough faith. I will always voice my will for your life loud and clear and often. You, you never have to trust me. You never have to go back to remember. You never have to lean in closer in a position of intimacy. In other words, you don't have to live by faith. 
We kind of expect God to treat us that way. We put promises in our, in, in our God's mouth. And so my hope and my prayer is that if you dive into God's word with me this morning, um, you're truly seeking to understand what God is saying in his word. You're going to discover a God who is reliable, and you're de- going to develop a trust in God that remains firm and unshaken. If you take God at his word this morning, even if you want to doubt God's goodness in your present experience, if you believe what he says, you're going to be able to learn how to rely on him throughout your life. And so the question I think that the text is really trying to answer this morning that we're going to be reading together is this. Can I trust God based on who he is and not necessarily based on my limited narrative about him? Can I trust God based on everything he is and not just what I see? So with that in mind, we are going to be reading Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. And so if you're able, would you go ahead and stand? We're going to read this together. Again, you've heard me say this a few times, but keep your Bible open. This is not your Bible up here, right? This is, we're going to read this together. It is God's word, but you're going home with one of these. Have this available to you. All right, here we go. We're going to read Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child, and notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children, as if it meant many descendants, Rather, it says, to his child. And that, of course, means Christ. This is what I am trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Um, what? (laughs) Let's seek the Lord and ask him to help us understand his word this morning. Jesus, we come before you totally devoid of worthiness, totally empty of ability to please you on our own and to understand you, to know you without you revealing yourself to us. I pray that you would do that today. Reveal yourself to us. Speak to us in your word Draw us close to you, and Lord, convince us, persuade us of your trustworthiness this morning. Give us faith, we ask. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. You might be reading through verses 15 to 22 and ask the question, what is going on? That sounds like a lot of minute details. So unless you're like a lawyer or you love reading the fine print on things, you might be one of those people who get to this point and you're like, ah, I think I'm just going to skip through this. I hope he summarizes it later. And what I want to do is I want to break down uh, the, the, the thought flow here for you. Um, what Paul is doing is he's trying to help the Galatian Christians understand how reliable God's promise is. And so what he does is he makes a lesser to greater comparison. The lesser comparison would be human promises, and the greater comparison would be God's promises. And so basically he's saying, look at this in verse 15. Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. So you think about an airtight, solid human agreement between somebody. Some sort of contractual negotiation that is rock solid. He's going like, if you make an irrevocable agreement, no one can break that agreement. But that's just on a human level. Imagine how much more sure and safe and airtight and rock solid an agreement from God who cannot lie is. Right? He's making a lesser to greater comparison. But he's making a comparison about God's promises, which he doesn't necessarily itemize here. He doesn't necessarily say, this is what it is, this is what it is, this is what it is, and this is what it is. He just kind of refers to it. He draws on an assumed knowledge. So what is the promise being referred to here specifically? Um, go back to the book of Genesis. If you have your Bible, you can flip back to Genesis really quick. Now God gives promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. And then he repeats it again in Genesis 15. And then he repeats it again, kind of summarizing it all and culminating it all in Genesis 17. We're going to go to Genesis 17 just for the sake of time. Genesis 17 Verse 4. Genesis 17, 4. God says, This is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. It will no longer be Abraham, but instead it will be Abraham. For you will be the father of many nations. And I will make you extremely fruitful. And your descendants, now the word there is the word seed. We translate it from Hebrew into English as children or descendants, but it's literally the word seed, like a seed you plant in the ground, right? Or like a human seed. And so it's the word seed, and, and, and Paul in Galatians is going to pick up on that. It's kind of weird, I'll be honest, I'm preaching a sermon about Saul's, or Paul's sermon that he's preaching to the Galatians. Paul is doing his own version of preaching to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3. And so we're kind of picking up on what he's doing here in that sermon. He's pointing out the fact that in Genesis 17, God says to Abraham something that, according to Paul, many people might have easily missed. He's saying, no, no, no. He's not just talking about kids. He's using the word seed to refer to one specific person. Okay, I want to I keep going here. I'll make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants, your seed, will become many nations and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your seed after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your seed after you. 
That's what's happening here. Okay? And, and so Paul's argument is that then fairly straightforward. In Genesis, God made a promise to Abraham. A promise that he had already shown was not based on the good deeds Abraham did, or the ex- extreme faithfulness Abraham lived with, or anything else besides God's own grace and good pleasure. This promise, unconditional, not based on Abraham at all, just totally based on God. So there's no ifs, ands, or buts, no strings attached. Abraham simply believed what God promised. And all was going great in this history lesson that Paul is reminding the Galatian Christians of until he gets to Moses. Until he gets to Moses, who delivered a new and different covenant. This covenant that was filled, this law that was filled with a lot of burdens of hundreds of laws, a code of behavior that made issues, or that made demands and issued threats, that had feasts and holidays and civic responsibilities and more, and all the hands start to go up in Paul's imaginary history class. (laughs) Wait, what? I thought God's promise was for God's people. Why does he now give them a law to live up to? What's the point of all that? Right, like check out verse 17. He gets down to verse 17. And and he goes, he's anticipating this question. This is what I'm trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would have been breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it wouldn't be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. So so Abraham's over here on the timeline of history. And God says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your seed. and, And many blessings, many nations will be blessed because of your seed. And then Genesis chapter 15, so you can look that up on your own time. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. So now Abraham is right with God. He's saved. He's going to be in heaven because of this moment when God said something and Abraham believed it. The question is, well, well then what's the purpose of the law if it's not to live up to it and make yourself right before God? Because obviously Abraham was made right before God before the law ever came. So why in the world do we have the law then? You tracking with me? Why do we have the law if it's not to make us right with God? Because Abraham already was made right with God way before, 430 years before the law ever came. So wait, what, what? All the hands in the history class are going up like, wait a second. Why do we have the law then? What was the point of all that? Because that seems like a big deal. That seems like the most of, if you're a Galatian Christian, the Old Testament is your Bible. And that's most of it. You're like, what's going on there? I can see at least two reasons that Paul has in mind to answer this question, why then the law? First question is this. First reason I think is this. Down to verse 24, he talks about the law as our guardian before Christ. Now I'm going to preach on that next week, so I don't want to get too deep into it, but it's helpful to get a quick understanding of this. In ancient Greek culture, a guardian, which is the common understanding when he's using this idea, a guardian was somebody who would help educate kids. Sometimes if you read some of the Greek philosophers, they'd have guardians or other people who would help educate. Instead of the parents doing that, they would have a private tutor come in, so to speak. One particular role of a guardian sometimes, additionally, was if a minor's parents died and that minor was supposed to receive an inheritance someday. But the inheritance was too important or too great or too big or whatever, too weighty 
for the minor to truly actually be able to receive it. And so the guardian would care for and teach and train and educate the minor to be ready to be able to receive it when he was old enough, he or she was old enough. And so the suggestion then is that one of the aspects of the law is that it's a guardian in our life to help us, to help us in our immaturity of understanding faith and life and God and to prepare us for what's coming, to prepare us for God's promise. So the argument here would be, if Jesus had come in the time of Moses, people wouldn't actually be ready for it. Right? People wouldn't have understood the fullness of what he was doing, would not have understood the fullness of salvation or understood who he was. When you look at the law, particularly all the religious and spiritual laws, they actually prepare us to begin to understand the fulfillment of Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promise in the flesh. Every law points us to God's heart. Every social responsibility aims our attention at, at the restoration of God's shalom, his peace, his perfect peace. Every feast helps us understand more about who Jesus is and why he came and what he came to do. So we don't follow the law to get into God's good graces, but it helps us understand them better. It's kind of like a picture book of who Jesus was eventually going to be. One that you lived out. So the law was designed to teach us and help prepare us to be able to receive what eventually would be the promise of justification by faith, sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit, and glorification ultimately in the presence of God forever. So that's the first reason Paul kind of points to for the promise. The second reason I think that he gets at here is in the next few verses, verse 19, why wouldn't the law was given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. There is something fundamentally broken between two parties. There, there is a legal dispute, so to speak, happening. You have God over here, and then you have humanity over here. And there was an infraction that had happened. There was, a, there was a, a dispute going on between the two. One party had wronged the other. That's what he's kind of referring to. Something terrible was going wrong to the extent that humanity would no longer be able to receive God's promise until whatever it was that went wrong was fixed. But until Moses came along, there was no way, no way to define what that actually was and therefore to pay for it. It was like you kind of assumed there was something wrong, but there was no law to define what the sin was. This is what Paul is saying here. The law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. You got these two parties that needed a mediator. Moses comes, he's the mediator temporarily with the law to help define what the infraction actually was so that restitution could be made. The law defines our sin and clearly shows us a need for a Savior. So what Paul's trying to say is that it was never the goal. It was never the goal. If you think about the law, it was never the goal that you were able to live up to the law. To actually fulfill it. That wasn't the point. God didn't have that intention in mind. The whole point was simply to define the brokenness that we were already experiencing until 
a resolution to our eternal crisis could be made. This is the point of the law. It was only supposed to show us our sin until someone could stand up in our place and deal with our sin and make us right with God again, ready to receive God's promise. And how did that happen? You had an imperfect mediator, Moses, until a perfect mediator came along, Jesus Christ. The Son of God himself stood in our place to make us right with God. Jesus, the visible image of the invisible God, came to this earth. He actually perfectly kept the law, but we killed him because we didn't actually believe who he, he was who he said he was. And as he was dying there on that cross, all of your sin, all of my sin, all of everyone's sin was put on him. And he bore the eternal consequences against all of our sin, completely dealing with all sin for all time. Jesus Christ became the curse before God because he took your sin on himself. He bore your curse, your inability to receive the promise of God because of your sin. And in that act of mediating between the guilty party, you, and the the offended party, God himself, all of your sin was rendered ineffective to keep you away from God's glory. Provided that you're united in Christ. The, uh, the one who actually did deal with the sin. If you're in him, if your faith is in Jesus, the one who perfectly negotiated your release from sin's consequences by paying it himself, that's when you're freed from the curse of sin and you're actually able to receive God's promise. In other words, you're freed from sin's curse when your faith is in Jesus Christ. And I just imagine as I'm reading through here, there's some more hands going up going like, hey, I'm still confused. Teacher Paul, um, is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Like, do they fight against each other? Does one cancel the other one out? And Paul goes, absolutely not. If the law could give us life, we'd be made right with God by obeying it. Like I said a couple weeks ago, in other words, if the point was that you could be made right with God, that you could earn life by just obeying the law, you'd be there already. It would have worked by now. But the scriptures, verse 22, declare that we're all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus. The law was never designed to make you right with God. That's what he's saying here. In fact, the thing that the law is actually aiming at is to get us to focus on the maker of the promise. How he keeps his promises even when we don't live up to the law. Even when we can't keep our own promises. What do we see that the law does a good job of? It reveals how inadequate we are at earning God's favor or being righteous on our own. It gives us a measure of what our sin is. And so it does all those things. But the one thing it's especially good at is actually pointing us to the one who can make us whole again. The one who can make us right with God. That actually is the point. So don't miss this. This is the crucial distinction that Paul is hanging on here. The promise was made 430 years before the law ever came. And so the ability people have to receive the promise of blessing through Christ never had anything to do with keeping the law in the first place. Right? Because it wouldn't be delivered for almost a half a millennium yet. Receiving the promise of God's blessing is not about keeping the law, but about being in Christ, the seed to whom the promise was also made. That's, that's the point of the law. And in, in those in Christ, they receive the promises made to Christ. In other words, it has nothing to do with the law. It has everything to do with faith. So what's the point? Why is Paul taking all of these theological bricks and building this 
this case to this enormous wall of theology. What is the point of him building upon each of these statements? It's to make this fact that you can trust God. And the example that he uses to prove that God can be trusted is that God's promises can be trusted. When God says something, you can trust it. So people can put their faith in God's promise because it never had anything to do with human efforts, but on God's power. God's promise relied not on your ability to live up to it, but upon God's power to carry it out, to be sure, to be reliable. So I don't need to live as if God is unreliable. I don't need to operate in crippling doubt. I can completely rely on a trustworthy God who keeps his word. In other words, I'm going to take my doubt and I'm going to put it on the shelf because God has proven himself. I'll take my doubt and I'll put it on the shelf because God's proven himself. I can trust God. I can put my full faith in him. I don't need to hold back in doubt anymore. I can totally rely on who God is and what he said. And how do I know that? Because he's proven it. He's demonstrated over and over and over again how reliable he is. I don't need any more proof. I don't need to do this in my own power anymore. I don't need to pretend to hold it all together. I trust you, God, and I'm going to go all in to believe you and rely on what you said and trust in who you are. I'll put my doubt on the shelf because God has proven himself. Like my doubt is deniable because God is reliable. I can trust. I can trust God. You can trust God. And I know it sometimes seems tempting to assume otherwise. Because like that's the biggest thing that the enemy is going to be trying to deceive you about. He's been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. To say, did God really say? It's his favorite line. Did God really say? But you can trust God. That's the point that God is making in his word this morning. So what does that look like in the life of the believer? I want to make a few observations really quick. Number one, you got to know what God says. <laughs> you can't trust God unless you know God's promises. You can't trust God unless you know God's word. You, you can't trust what God says until you know what God says. I mean, think about the entire structure of the argument here, right? Remember, this is what Paul's saying. Remember what God said in his word? Let's talk about how that demonstrates God's trustworthiness. He goes, hey, God gave the promise to Abraham and his child. And notice the scripture doesn't say to his children as if it meant to many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. That is, of course, it means Christ. Like he's assuming that people know what God's talking about. He assumes that you know God's word. The effect of his reasoning here would have been totally missed if no one was familiar with God's promises. You, you can't trust God until you first know what he says. So number one, know what God says. I'll tell you this, the Christian who can be the easiest to convince that God is not trustworthy the Christian who rarely spends time in this. You're not going to know that God comes through on what he says unless you know what he says. A Bible that's falling apart is often the sign of a Christian who isn't. 
have a dusty Bible and a dusty heart. But it's not enough just to know what God says. You need to see him come through on it. Right? You, you need this second observation, I think, that we can get from the text is, number one, you need to know what God says, but number two, you need to watch what God does. You can't trust God until you rely on his promise in a situation where previously you used to try to handle it. God's not interested in you playing God and him also being God in the same moment. You've got to give God a chance to prove himself. Consider the message of this letter and specifically this chapter. You don't need to work so hard to stay right with God. That's not the point. It's God's promised Holy Spirit who rescues you from the consequences of your sin in the first place and then who continually empowers you to overcome your unrighteousness as you stay close to him. But you're not going to be truly experiencing the glory of God's grace if you're trying to work for it in your own power. That's not how it works. You've got to give God a chance to show himself reliable, especially in those moments in your life. And it might be different for every person here, but that moment in your life where you used to try to handle it, I'm fine. I'm good. Which is probably some of the biggest lies we all say. I'm fine. I'm good, right? And I'm just trying to handle it. And I don't give God a chance to prove himself, to prove how reliable he is in that moment. I'm going to hold it all together so no one can see my weakness. How do you know God is strong unless you let him overcome your weakness? If you want to truly discover how trustworthy God is, you've got to deem him worthy of your trust. So you've got to watch what God does. You're not really trusting God until you rely on his promises, rely on his word in a situation where previously you tried to handle it. And number three, Rest in who God is. So number one, know what God says. Number two, watch what God does. And number three, rest in who God is. You're going to enjoy a relationship with God when you begin to build a shared history with God. See, the move away from handling it is a move in a total different direction in your life. A different direction from how you've always been living And I encourage you to start giving God a chance. Start letting him into the moments that used to be dominated by your coping mechanisms or your frustrations or your anxious mistakes. You don't need to hold on so tight. He's holding you together. He is trustworthy. He's reliable. He's stronger than you are. He can handle it. You don't have to. He can be trusted. He's a man of his word. So you start with one moment at a time. You start with letting him prove himself to you. As one blessing turns into another, and as one season passes into another, and you let him hold you this time, and then the next time, and then the next time, he's building a shared history with you. He's saying, I don't want to get too far ahead of you, and I don't want you to get too far ahead of me. Just let me hold your hand. Just let me hold you together. Let me hold this moment let me demonstrate how trustworthy I am. He's a man of his word, but you cannot run so far trying to hold it all together and still be able to trust that God will hold you. That's not how trust works. God's saying, I want to prove myself to you. In those moments where you used to kind of 
bristle up tight. Someone let you down. Someone disappointed you in your past. And you're holding it against God now. And God's going like, I didn't like that either. That hurt me too. I died on the cross for that too. So why don't I let you see what real life is like? Why, why, why don't we walk into true abundant living together? I can hold it. I can handle it. I've got you. And it's the shared history of trusting God's promises and acting on that trust and then seeing him come through. That's what builds a foundation of intimacy with God over time. And that's the invitation. Will you rest in what God has already spoken over you? Will you take God's word, take God at his word? Will you live by faith? I'll put my doubt on the shelf because God has proven himself. And maybe this morning, this is where it gets personal. Because you've made God into your own image, one that will never disappoint you, one that you can fully understand, one that you can wrap your whole mind around and you can frankly control. And so you put promises in his mouth and you judge him according to that. And maybe this morning you need to delete those promises that you put in God's mouth and instead dare to believe the word he's already spoken. You need to dare to believe what God has already said over you. You need to dare to live as if what God says matters and it has authority in my life. And I actually believe he's going to come through on it. And I don't know what scenario in your life that is. For each one of us, it's going to be a different thing. The point at which your insecurity pulls the rug out from underneath God being able to come through for you. You're like, I trust you, but not that far. And that's the point at which you're going to discover true life. It's on the other side of that. The invitation to you this morning is to give that to God. And, and maybe you're here this morning and, and you've never received this amazing promise, this amazing blessing of having your sin forgiven. Your, your record can be made clean. You can be made right with God and empowered by God to live a life that is not only filled with love and joy and peace, that is not only filled with abundant life, but is also filled with God's presence as he handles it for you and he walks with you and you don't have to do this alone. And you've never given God a chance in your life. And this morning you're saying, I'm at the end of myself and I need to receive God's promise of salvation. I need to be forgiven. I need to be justified. I need my sins to be washed clean. And the Bible is very clear about how that happens. It has nothing to do with you. Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place. He was punished for all the ways that you and I should have been punished because of our sin. The ways that we've sinned against God. And as God's wrath against your sin, against my sin, consumed him on the cross, he died. In the position that you and I should have been dying. And he was buried in the grave and three days later he came back again from the grave, forgiving your sin, defeating death, and offering you a chance at new life. And the Bible says if you put your faith in him, if you confess your sin, and you believe in Jesus, you're forgiven. 
If, if you put your faith in Jesus that he did that for you and now he is the one who gets to be in charge. He is the one who gets to be the Lord. He is the one who gets to redefine what my life is as he gives me new life. If you put your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. You will be made right with God. And you're going to begin to discover a life where you don't have to hold it all together. And there's one who's already been doing that for your entire life. And he wants to offer you the promise of a relationship with him. Would you put your faith in Jesus today? Would you believe God's promise and receive it? You can do that even today. Jesus, we come before you totally empty-handed, unable, un, unable to receive what you've promised. And frankly, we confess sometimes even unwilling to let you come through on that. I pray that you would persuade us Convince our hearts of your goodness and your grace and your glory and your trustworthiness. I pray, God, that in that moment of trying to handle it, that you'd convict us of your grace, that you've already got it under control. You'd convict us of your love, that you're already handling it all, and that nothing can happen unless it passes through your loving hands. That you actually are the one who holds it all together. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to build our lives on that, on that foundation.